this is Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. We are coming into our final segment for season 9. This is episode 93. And it is Wednesday, Relationship Wednesday. We are back in our reading of Bell Hooks' book, All About Love. And we are picking up where we left off. We are in the chapter entitled Romance, Sweet Love, Chapter 10. We're going to continue to have this conversation as Bell Hooks gives us her insights into romantic love and its effects. Uh, We've got a few pages left that we're going to try to get through tonight. And then I'm going to open it up for conversation. The next time that we read from this book will be next Wednesday. And it will be the last time that we're in this book. So I do recommend that you grab a copy of this book for yourself because we are probably not going to finish it um, online. But it is, it has um, two more chapters, three more chapters. One is entitled Loss, Loving into Life and Death, Healing, Redemptive Love, and Destiny when Angels Speak of Love. Um, I highly recommend this book. It has been very engaging and very enlightening. Again, we are reading from tonight, All About Love by Bell Hooks, New Visions of Love. We're in the chapter, Romance, Sweet Love. Throughout our lives, we meet lots of people with whom we feel that special click that could take us on the path of love. But this click is not the same as a soul connection. Often a deeper bonding with another person, a soul connection happens whether we will it to be so or not. Indeed, sometimes we are drawn towards someone without knowing why, even when we do not desire contact. Several couples, she says, I talk with who have found true love enjoy telling the story of how one of them did not find the other at all appealing at first meeting, even though they felt mysteriously joined to that individual. In all cases where individuals felt that they had known true love, everyone testified that the bonding was not easy or simple. To many folks, this seems confusing precisely because our fantasy of true love is that it will be just that, simple and easy. Usually, we imagine that true love will be intensely pleasurable and romantic, full of love and light. In truth, true love is all about work. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke wisely observed, like so much else, people who have also misunderstood the place of love in life They have made it into play and pleasure because they thought that play and pleasure was more blissful than work. But there is nothing happier than work and love just because it is extreme happiness can be nothing else but work. The essence of true love is mutual recognition, she writes, two individuals seeing each other as they really are. We all know that the usual approach is to meet someone we like and put our best self forward or even at times a false self, one we believe will be more appealing to the person we want to attract. When our real self appears in its entirety, when the good behavior becomes too much to maintain or the masks are taken away, disappointment comes. 
All too often, individuals feel after the fact, when feelings are hurt and hearts are broken, that it was a case of mistaken identity, that the loved one is a stranger. They saw what they wanted to see rather than what was really there. True love is a different story. When it happens, individuals usually feel in touch with the other's core identity. Embarking on such a relationship is frightening precisely because we feel there is no place to hide. We are known. All the ecstasy that we feel emerges as this love nurtures us and challenges us to grow and transform. Describing true love, Eric Butterworth writes, True love is a peculiar kind of insight through which we see the wholeness which the person is, at the same time totally accepting the level on which they now express themselves, without any delusion that the potential is a present reality. True love accepts the person who now is without qualifications, but with a sincere and unwavering commitment to help him to achieve his goals or her goals of self-unfoldment, which we may see better than they do. Most of the time we think that love means just accepting the other person as they are. Who among us has not learned the hard way that we cannot change someone? mold them and make them into the ideal beloved we might want them to be. Good evening to those of you who are coming in. Yet when we commit to true love, we are committed to being changed, to being acted upon by the beloved in a way that enables us to be more fully self-actualized. This commitment to change is chosen. It happens by mutual agreement. Again and again in conversations, the most common vision of true love I have heard shared was one that declared it to be unconditional. True love is unconditional, but to truly flourish, it requires an ongoing commitment to constructive struggle and change. The heartbeat of true love is the willingness to reflect on one's actions and to process and communicate this reflection with the loved one. As Wellwood puts it, two beings who have a soul connection want to engage in a full, free-ranging dialogue and commune with each other as deeply as possible. Honesty and openness is always the foundation of insightful dialogue. Most of us have not been raised in homes where we have seen two deeply loving grown folks talking together. We do not see this on television or at the movies. And how can any of us communicate with men who have been told all their lives that they should not express how they feel? Men who want to love and do not know how must first come to voice, must learn to let their hearts speak, and then to speak the truth. Choosing to be fully honest, to reveal ourselves, is risky. The experience of true love gives us the courage to risk. As long as we are afraid to risk, we cannot know love. Hence the truism, love is letting go of fear. Our hearts connect with lots of folks in a lifetime, but most of us will go to our graves with no experience of true love. This is in no way tragic. Most of us run the other way when true love comes near. Since true love sheds light on those aspects of ourselves we may wish to deny or hide, enabling us to see ourselves clearly and without shame, It is not surprising that so many individuals who say they want to know love turn away when such love beckons them. No matter how often we turn our minds and hearts away or how stubbornly we refuse to believe in its magic, true love exists. 
Everyone wants it, even those who claim to have given up hope. But not everyone is ready. True love appears when our hearts are ready. A few years ago, I was sick and had one of those cancer scares where the doctor tells you if the tests are positive, you will not have long to live. Hearing his words, I lay lay there thinking I could not possibly die because I am not ready. I have not known true love, Bell writes. Right then, I committed myself to opening my heart. I was ready to receive such love, and it came. This relationship did not last forever, and that was difficult to face. All the romantic lore of our culture has told us when we find true love with a partner, it will continue. Yet this partnership lasts only if both parties remain committed to being loving. Not everyone can bear the weight of true love. Wounded hearts turn away from love because they do not want to do the work of healing necessary to sustain and nurture it. Many men especially often turn away from true love and choose relationships in which they can be emotionally withholding when they feel like it, but still receive love from someone else. Ultimately, they choose power over love. To know and keep true love, we have to be willing to surrender the will to power. When one knows a true love, the transformative force of that love lasts, even when we no longer have the company of the person with whom we experience profound mutual care and growth. Thomas Merton writes, we discover our true selves in love. Many of us are not ready to accept and embrace our true selves, particularly when living with integrity alienates us from familiar worlds. Often, when we undergo a process of self-discovery, for a time we may find ourselves even more alone. Writing about choosing solitude over company that does not nurture one's soul, Maya Angelou reminds us that, quote, it is never lonesome in Babylon. Fear of facing true love may actually lead some individuals to remain in situations of lack and unfulfillment. There, they are not alone. They are not at risk. To love fully and deeply puts us at risk. When we love, we are changed utterly. Merton asserts, quote, Love affects more than our thinking and our behavior towards those we love. It transforms our entire life. Genuine love is a personal revolution. Love takes your ideas, your desires, and your actions and wells them together in one experience and one living reality, which is a new you. We often are in flight from the new you. Richard Bach's autobiographical love story, Illusions, describes both his flight from love and his return. To return to love, he had to be willing to sacrifice and surrender, to let go of the fantasy of being someone with no sustained emotional needs, to acknowledge his love, his need to be loved and to love. We sacrifice our old selves in order to be changed by love and we surrender to the power of the new self. Love within the context of romantic bonding offers us the unique chance to be transformed in a welcome celebratory atmosphere. Without falling in love, we can recognize that moment of mysterious connection between our soul and that of another person as love's attempt to call us back to our true selves. Intensely connecting with another soul, we are made bold and courageous, using that fearless will to bond and connect as a catalyst for choosing and committing ourselves to love. We are able to love truly and deeply, to give and receive a love that lasts, a love that is stronger 
than death. Um, I kind of resonate with what she is saying here. Um, The fact that true love allows you to be your most, I would say not just your most authentic self, but I would also say it allows you to be your most, your highest form of yourself. And that it's not a, like a one-time thing. Like there's a, there's a comfort and there's a security in knowing that I can be myself in the present and also have the ability to grow, to change, to transform, and to become my highest self um, in a relationship. So that is my thoughts on romantic love. I could say a lot more. Um, I would say that I'm definitely in a relationship that is true love, as she um, expounds on here. But I want to dip in a little bit into chapter 11, since we are going to be closing out this book next week. And that is loss, loving into life and death. Henry Nguyen said, you have to trust that every friendship has no end, that a communion of saints exists among all those living and dead who have truly loved God in one another. You know from experience how real this is. Those you have loved deeply and who have died lived on in you, not just as memories, but as real presences. She writes, Love makes us feel more alive. Living in a state of lovelessness, we might f- we feel we might as well be dead. Everything within us is silent and still. We are unmoved. Soul murder is the term psychoanalysts use to describe this state of living death. It echoes the biblical declaration that anyone who does not know love is still in death. Cultures of domination court death. Hence the ongoing fascination with violence, the false insistence that it is natural for the strong to prey upon the weak, for the more powerful to prey upon the powerless. In our culture, the worship of death is so intense it stands in the way of love. On his deathbed, Eric Fromm asked a beloved friend why we prefer love of death to love of life, why the human race prefers necrophilia to biophilia. Coming from Fromm, this question was merely rhetorical as he had spent his life explaining our cultural failure to fully embrace the the reality that love gives life meaning. Unlike love, death will touch us all at some point in our lives. We will witness the death of others or we will witness our own, even if it's just in the brief instance when life is fading away. Living with lovelessness is not a problem we openly and readily complain about. Yet the reality that we will all die generates tremendous concern, fear, and worry. It may well be that the worship of death, indicated by the constant spectacles of dying we watch on television screens daily, is one way our culture tries to still that fear, to conquer it, to make us comfortable. Writing about the meaning of death in contemporary culture, Thomas Merton explains, quote, Psychoanalysis has taught us something about the death wish that pervades the modern world. We discover our affluent society to be profoundly addicted to the love of death. In such a society, though much may officially be said about our human values, whenever there is in fact a choice between the living and the dead, between men and money, or men and power, or men and bombs, 
The choice will always be for death, for death is the end or the goal of life. Our cultural obsession with death consumes energy that could be given to the art of loving. The worship of death is a central component of patriarchal thinking, whether expressed by women or men. Visionary theologians see the failure of religion as one reason our culture remains death-centered. In his work, Original Blessing, Matthew Fox explains, quote, Western civilization has preferred love of death to love of life to the very extent that its religious traditions have preferred redemption to creation, sin to ecstasy, and individual introspection to cosmic awareness and appreciation. For the most part, patriarchal perspectives have shaped religious teaching and practice. Recently, there's been a turning away from these teachings toward a creation-grounded spirituality that is life-affirming. Fox calls this the Via Positiva. Without this solid grounding in creation's powers, we become bored or violent people. We become necrophiliacs in love with death and the powers and principalities of death. We move away from this worship of death by challenging patriarchy, creating peace, working for justice, and embracing a love ethic. Ironically, the worship of death as a strategy for coping with our underlying fear of death's power does not truly give us peace. It is deeply anxiety producing. The more we watch spectacles of meaningless death, of random violence and cruelty, the more afraid we become in our daily lives. We cannot embrace the stranger with love for now we fear the stranger. We believe the stranger is a messenger of death who wants our life. This irrational fear is an expression of madness if we think of madness as meaning that we are out of touch with reality. Even though we are more likely to be hurt by someone we know than a stranger, our fear is directed toward the unknown and the unfamiliar. That fear brings with it intense paranoia and a constant obsession with safety. The growing number of gated communities in our nation is but one example of the obsession with safety. With guards at the gate, individuals still have bars and elaborate international security systems. Americans spend more than $30 billion a year on security. When I have stayed with friends in these communities and inquired as to whether all the security is in response to an actual danger, I am told, not really. That it is the fear of threat rather than a real threat that is the catalyst for an obsession with safety that borders on madness. Culturally, we bear witness to this madness every day. We can all tell endless stories of how it makes itself known in everyday life. For example, an adult white male answers the door when a young Asian male rings the bell. We live in a culture where without responding to any gesture of aggression or hostility on the part of the stranger, who is simply lost in trying to find the correct address, the white male shoots him, believing he is protecting his life and his property. This is an everyday example of insanity. The person who is really the threat here is the homeowner who has been so well socialized by the thinking of white supremacy, of capitalism, and patriarchy that he can no longer respond rationally to someone ringing the door. White supremacy has taught him that all people of color are threats irrespective of their behavior. Capitalism has taught him that, at all costs, his property can and must be protected. 
and patriarchy has taught him that his masculinity has to be proved by the willingness to conquer fear through aggression, that it would be unmanly to ask questions before taking action. Mass media then brings us the news of this in a news peak manner that sounds almost as jocular and celebratory as though no tragedy has happened, as though the sacrifice of a young life was necessary to uphold property values and patriarchal honor. Viewers are encouraged to feel sympathy for the white male homeowner who made a mistake. The fact that this mistake led to the violent death of an innocent person does not register. The narrative is worded in a manner that encourages the viewer to identify with the one who made the mistake by doing what we are led to feel we might do to all protect our property at all costs from any sense of perceived threat. This is what the worship of death looks like. All the worship of death we see on our television screens, all the death we witness daily does not prepare us in any way to face dying with awareness, clarity, or peace of mind. When worship of death is rooted in fear, it does not enable us to live fully or well. Merton contends, quote, if we become obsessed with the idea of death hiding and waiting for us in ambush, we are not making death more real, but life less real. Our life is divided against itself. It becomes a tug of war between the love and the fear itself. Death then operates in the midst of life, not as the end of life, but rather as the fear of life itself. To live fully, we would need to let go of the fear of dying. That fear can only be addressed by the love of living. We have a long history in this nation of believing that to be too celebratory is dangerous, that being optimistic is foolhardy, hence our difficulty in celebrating life, in teaching our children and ourselves how to love life. I'm going to stop right there. She said a lot. That was a uh, quite a bit to take in, quite a mouthful. I am trying to wave at those of you who have come in, but for some reason, uh, my IG is not responding. But the fear of loss, the fear of dying, romantic love, being our true selves, those are our topics on tonight. If you would like to join me in conversation, you can invite yourself in and I will bring you on screen. If you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you tonight for your time and attention. Remember, you can always leave me a voice message in your response to tonight's podcast. I hope you have a great and wonderful evening. Take care and God bless.